millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, I'm just back from a break in the Deep South, and I'd like at this point to register my protest against the gods of climate who deigned there be a heatwave before I went down and another after I return, but that it would be a terribly dull and wet two weeks while I was in situ. There's no justice in the world. And before anybody takes umbrage at my less than serious comments on what is a climate change issue, my defence is that for two weeks of the year I'm on holidays, not just from work, but also from the burning issue of our times. Anyway, so it goes. Now, Ares Rebel Vigilante Bomber is a book documenting the extraordinary life of Rose Dugdale. For those of you who, let's say, are on the wrong side of 50, the name will surely ring a bell, as she was one of the most highly unusual and unorthodox characters to emerge from the period of violence in the North. Dugdale was born into English aristocracy and ordinarily might have been destined for a life of relative luxury and privilege in the upper echelons of British society. Instead, she became radicalised in college and found in the upheavals in Northern Ireland a place she knew next to nothing about at the outset. Anyway, she found a cause to which she decided to dedicate herself. Her life thereafter is really like something out of a novel, except it was very real, where some might see her time since then in romantic or or revolutionary terms, if you want to put it that way. Many others would view her actions as those of a fanatic who had no compunction in being involved in the killing of human beings for political ends. I read the book in Doreen and Kerry and I have to say it's a fascinating account. The author, journalist Sean O'Driscoll, does not, as some have suggested, glamorise or gloss over the crimes which Dugdale engaged in, but he does take a look at the human being behind the headlines. And Sean O'Driscoll joins me now. Sean, you're very welcome. Thanks, Mick. It's great to be on the show. Sean, to start at the start, what brought you to the subject of Rose Dugdale? I suppose she was always there in the back of my mind as a fascinating person. And then my first book was about a guy called David Rupert, who was a trucker from from America with a trucking company in Chicago. And he knew absolutely nothing about Ireland. And he met a woman in a bar who happened to be in, in Norwood and high up in the Democratic Party. And I kind of felt it was interesting to kind of explore the Northern Ireland troubles through the eyes of somebody who knew nothing about Northern Ireland and was kind of coming into it from the outside so that the reader could kind of learn about the troubles as the person themselves is learning about it. So then when when I was finishing that book, I kind of thought, well, who else is coming completely from the outside into this? And the obvious choice then was Rose Dugdale. Um, Very different background, of course, from a Chicago trucker, but she, she was coming... Uh, completely into it from the outside and I, I wanted to kind of bring the reader in into the Northern Ireland Troubles that way through, through somebody who, who was coming at it from a completely different angle. Yeah, all was very interesting. I, I suppose in a slightly similar vein from the point of view of the author rather than the subject there was uh, Patrick Redden-Keefe from the New Yorker his, his book 
say nothing. And he 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 made a virtue of the fact that he himself he's American. He came from completely outside, and that's an, another fascinating account. Um, not in a dissimilar vein to your own, Sean. No. Rose Dugdale, okay, for those, as I say, who may not be familiar with her, bit of background, where she came from, uh, type of environment she grew up in. Uh, she came from upper-class background. She grew up in Chelsea, in a double townhouse there, in an absolutely beautiful part of Chelsea, probably the nicest part, but really, you know, with lots of space around it, uh, parks. And then the family had a 600-acre estate in Devon, um, she used to love uh, the country estate more than the townhouse in Chelsea. Uh, her mother came from an enormously big estate home in uh, Gloucestershire, one of the biggest houses in Gloucestershire, absolutely fantastic, ram- rambling estate. Um, and her father uh, was in the military in Britain. On both sides of the family, a lot of wealth. Her father was one of the names in Lloyd's insurance company, an underwriter, you know, where you basically put up your money and then, you, you share in uh, the profits from, from Lloyd's. Uh, so that was the kind of atmosphere she grew up in. You know, she, she went to a um, very posh school for girls in Kensington. Um, she had a, a nanny. Um, all the privileges one might expect from somebody who grew up in Chelsea or, or, or uh, Kensington. Um, and her, her mother was originally married to Oswald Mosley's brother. Oswald Mosley was a fascist leader in Britain. And um, somehow, miraculously, with two kids, managed to find a very decent army retiree and went to live with him in his house in Chelsea. And that's where Rose was born. Right. And then our education, I suppose, along similar lines for for people from that uh, stratum of society. Absolutely. Yeah. I spoke to quite a few of her, her classmates. I thought one of them had an interesting point, which is that they had a, an elocution teacher, but that it, in those days it was what they would call received English, where everybody in Scotland and Ireland and w- would be expected to, to scrap their accent and, and learn the posh upper class British accent as the correct accent you know, in, in, the, in the 1940s, 1950s. But her, her classmate said the, the elocution teacher's problem was that we already all already had upper class posh accents, so so all she could do really was just teach us poetry and that kind of thing because they had the, the received English uh, of, of the time. So that, that was the kind of atmosphere that she grew up in, and it was very the school was very much about uh, improving yourself and comics and cartoons were frowned upon. Um, her, her classmate, Virginia Ironside, had a great story. She, she was actually the niece of the, the two women, two sisters who, who were running the school. She was on a, on a train and asked for comics and they refused and gave her a book on Norman architecture. <laughs> and then at, at, at the last second, as the train was taking off from Scotland, one of them came running onto the train and went, oh, if you want your bloody lurid cartoons, here they are, and threw some comics on the table. <laughs> you yeah. know, so it, it was very much like... Uh, uh, frivolity w- was frowned upon. You were to kind of learn the correct ways of of society. Okay, and as we know, what, what whatever it was, not whatever it was, uh, the, you might describe as the radicalization of Rose Dugdale, which led her to um, to the north. What would you trace that to, Sean? At what stage in her development did it become obvious that she would not? followed the traditional route that might be expected. She was, I think, was it a debutant in front of the Queen even at that stage? So obviously at some point along the line, she came to a conclusion that that life as such was not for her. 
Yeah, like during the debutante season, uh, which was the final one, the final one where upper class um, 17 or 18 year olds are brought before the Queen to bow and curtsy before her. But in the months leading up to that, even she was really starting to question things. You know, she she had her big uh, coming out ball, as they would call it, uh, with lots of Tory MPs and so on. But uh, she really was starting to question it and told a Tory MP at the event that it seems like such a waste of money to her. But uh, the real radicalization, I think, came when she was in Oxford. That's when she really started to question things. She she had a secret affair with her her professor, Peter Eady. who was actually a woman, despite the name Peter. And Peter was all about um, international trade and the exploitation of the third world in, in Africa and Asia and what could be done to improve their situation. And she took in Rose as her kind of her understudy when she was writing a, an economic um, atlas of, of Africa. And that's when, when Rose really started to question things. The two of them then later got a job in, in the Department of of Foreign Trade and, and Aid. Uh, and and so Rose really, really started to learn about how all these fortunes in England were made by by taking vast amount of copper and iron from from Africa, by by taking it taking rubber and other products from India and leaving people with very little. But it, but that was still Peter Eady was still very much an establishment figure. But it, when the sixties happened, and all these radical ideas that are flooding in, let's say from nineteen sixty six, nineteen sixty seven, especially nineteen sixty eight, and Rose really threw herself into that kind of radical politics, whereas Peter Eady and the Oxford set most certainly didn't. Yeah, and I find that very interesting, Sean. As you say, Peter Eady and and others who would have been direct contemporaries of um, Rose Dugdale would have been radicalised by the 60s as generations across the Western world were uh, towards kind of a left-wing ideology, uh, uh, you know, very common. But what struck me slightly about that, because in in the book you mentioned a number of them who go on and they feature, for example, in the Labour Party, some of them end up being supporters of Jeremy Corbyn and that. And what struck me about that was, I wonder, was there some parallels with, if you go back to, wasn't it Cambridge in the 30s, the... Burgess and these other guys who became Soviet spies. The 30s, of course, was another time where there was radical thought, that time in relation to communism. And then you had the few Burgess and these guys who went over the top, so to speak, and actually joined the Soviet Union, whereas most of them integrated into life and perhaps integrated their communism into a more establishment way. Similarly, you've Dugdale here who actually goes to full hog and decides she's going to become a revolutionary, to use that word, whereas most of her contemporaries didn't go that far and, and they they integrated into left-wing political life, so to speak, in the UK. Yeah, I, I find that fascinating. And I, what I call the great cover-up is the vast, vast amount of people who are into Marxist left-wing radical politics in Britain and across Europe suddenly kind of changed their story later in life. Uh, there's, a, there's a woman called Nettie Pollard who's mentioned in the book who was a volunteer for Rose. And, and she said, you know, her, her partner um, was very much into radical politics. But then when she became a solicitor, she had on her website that she's been a lifelong Labour supporter. But she wasn't, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But they all, they, they all kind of migrated over to the Labour Party once the communes and the squats and all of that became a thing of their past. And they... Kind of just pretended, oh yeah, I know I've always been into you know a social democracy, but but they really weren't. 
whereas Rose, I think, was determined that she was going to cross that line to the point of no return, that she couldn't be like like Fisher in Germany, you know, who was mixed up with the Batter-Meinhof group and, and would later kind of say, oh, no, I, you know, I, I wasn't really, you know, but he was. And, and but there, there was some in the radical left who absolutely wanted to jump over that threshold to the point that they would be seen to uh, cross it to a point that, that, that there was a point of no return. A bit like Ulrike Meinhof in Germany, Rose was influenced by that kind of radical Red Army faction, Red Brigades in Italy, those kind of groups. Like she, she really wanted to see herself as a kind of a revolutionary that was going to herald this new uh, Marxist takeover in Europe, which it seems so ludicrous in our in our era. But there was a tremendous amount of people thinking that way at the time, and they had an intellectual backing from from some of the the great intellectuals of Europe and. Only recently, the the tapes have been released of, of Jean Paul Sartre meeting Andreas Bader, who was you know the, the the leader of the Red Army faction in Germany, and 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 Jean Paul Sartre walks into the prison. The first thing he says to him is, "Is I, I come to I come to you as a supporter, uh, you know, of a group that's yeah. killing people left, right, and center." So, like, there was an intellectual kind of uh, base to it as well that was giving it a justification, and uh, she was very, very much part of that too, you know. Yeah, it is. I, I find that whole thing fascinating, to be honest with you. Um, and in making that leap, no more than, as, as you mentioned, the Bader Minehouse gang, the first thing that is required is a willingness to take up arms in one form or another and kill people for what you believe in. And the other element to it, I suppose, that uh, purely down to timing was the fact that if you were from her background, their upper echelons of British society, here was the example on your doorstep, the North, where you could go and uh, try and implement your ideas and join what you regarded as, as kindred spirits in one way. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And uh, I mean, for the radical left, uh, Northern Ireland suddenly opened up the proof of capitalist oppression and this sort and that kind of terms. And uh Rose had at that time set up a, a claimants union, as it was called in Tottenham, an office where she was giving away her entire inheritance, family fortune uh, to the poor of North London. And then in walked one day this um, union official called Wally Heaton. And he, he was ex-army. He had seen British army atrocities in Malaysia and uh, had come back very bitter and I think suffering from PTSD. And he really brought Rose into the Northern Ireland conflict in, in terms of saying, like, it's it's okay for you being here in Tottenham buying cat food for old ladies, but Northern Ireland is, is going to herald the revolution. In other words, that the oppressed of Northern Ireland, the nationalists, are going to overthrow the British system. And if we can just get the working class in Britain to join up with them, then we'll overthrow the monarchy, we'll overthrow everything and, you know, set up some sort of socialist utopia. And uh, and she bought into all of that politics completely. She uh, she couldn't get over to Northern Ireland fast enough with Wally Heaton to tour herself into that kind of politics. And and in no time at all, she she went from using her money to buy coal for old people and 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 clothes for for young kids, and even giving an apartment to a homeless homeless couple who, who were living in a graveyard. And and then certainly she was using that money to buy up weapons from from gangsters in in Manchester and shipping them over to the IRA in Northern Ireland. Yeah, and she arrives in Northern Ireland and um, I suppose in one way because of the times, as you said, 
some elements of it saw itself as this part of an international movement. It wasn't unusual, but in another way, this aristocratic English woman arrives on the doorstep in Derry and uh, is proclaiming her her her, uh, her willingness to to use that phrase to fight for Irish freedom. I I would have thought there'd have been some suspicions in the first instance of her. Oh, there was definitely. Uh, there was definitely. Um, in fact, uh, Eddie Gallagher who was later her partner, said that there was a tremendous amount of resistance to her in Belfast and the leadership from, from Joe Cahill, Sean McStephon in particular. Um, and he was kind of taking her under a wing after Wally Heaton was put in prison. And they were saying, she's an upper-class woman, she's obviously a spy. And Eddie Gallagher was saying, well, now, if MI5 are sending over a spy, they're hardly going to send over an upper-class <laughs> British woman. And then they were saying, well, that's exactly what they want you to think, you know, that it's too obvious. Yeah. And, uh, but over time then, I think she won the conference at the IRA with uh, her actions. You know, she, she was involved in a, a, a hijacking and a, a helicopter to drop bombs on a, a police and army station in Japan. And, and then she, she stole a load of paintings from, from the Bates family in Wicklow to try and get IRA prisoners in London transferred to Belfast. So um, she was very eager then to prove herself. You know, she was one of these kind of converts that had a lot to prove and really wanted to throw herself into the struggle as much as she could. Yeah, and that incident with the, the hijacking the helicopter, just the, the image of it, like, I mean, they, they hijacked the helicopter, they dropped the bomb from the helicopter into the army compound. I mean, on on one level, it's kind of primitive in a form of lunacy. Uh, this is completely aside from the fact of, of, of in my opinion, the, 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 the quite relatively, the totally wrong element of dropping bombs anywhere, but purely from a, a, a operational point of view. Uh, going up in a helicopter, dropping this bomb down, and up there is your woman who... <laughs> not too long previously was like this, this sort of pillar in, in, in Oxford and what have you uh, there's something uh, completely off the wall about it and, and then you've Eddie Gallagher who, who's a, a fascinating figure in his own right who was sort of who, who I venture to say he wasn't your typical IRA man either a uh, very resourceful fella and the two of them found themselves together now eventually they had a child but I also was interested that, and, and we'll move on to the fact that the attempt to get Dugdale out of prison and what that involved, but I was interested to see that despite having the child and despite them being, being considered something of, of a pair or a couple, there wasn't an awful lot of romance between them. No. And I, I you know, in, in the beginning I thought, oh, this book is sunk now, I'm never going to get it finished because I went up to Donegal to interview Eddie and I asked him, you know, what was the romance between your, yourself and Rose? And he's like, what romance? What romance are you talking about? And I said, well, you have a child together. Like, it wasn't the Immaculate Conception, you know. There must have been some sort of romance. And and he said, look, you know, we were going from one IRA safe house to another to another and sharing the same bed. And eventually you run out of conversation. You have to think of something else to do. So that was... Uh, that was the no, <laughs> not, uh, not very romantic at all. Um, and, wouldn't make it to Hollywood anyway, put it that way, Sean. <laughs> um, <laughs> as you say, then, she was on debate paintings and... From recollection, there was a. Uh, some people were terrorised in, in in the course of that uh, robbery in uh, in Wicklow. Eventually, she was captured, she was tried, and she was sentenced to prison 
and sent to Limerick Prison. That's right. She got nine years um, for hijacking a helicopter in Donegal for the Straban bombing and then nine years concurrently for the bait robbery. So, yeah, nine years in total. And she was the first female prisoner in Limerick Prison at the time. Um, enormous security around her because Eddie Gallagher was known as the IRA's um, escape man. You know, he was involved in quite a few escapes of IRA prisoners. And uh, so they put a, a special netting over the, the exercise yard so that a helicopter couldn't land there. And they put army turrets around the, the prison for the first time. And, you know, the, the prison guard gave me a really good description of just, you know, watching this huge security operation going to place. They even um, put in a, a, a new guideline for, for planes that they, they had to double their airspace flying over Limerick City so that they could be ensured that Eddie wouldn't try and hijack a helicopter or a plane and, and get her out of there. It it, it, it has echoes of, of uh, your man, who was it, Hess, the, the German guy yeah, in Berlin, the one man in a prison kind of thing with all this security, but that, yeah, that's that's the way it started out. No, she gave birth in prison. She did, yeah. She hid the pregnancy for nine months because Eddie told me the, the plan. They were, he was getting a lot of messages to her through their solicitor, um, who was a, a Republican um, based in Dublin in Chapel Lizard. And he was able to transfer a lot of messages. So his message to Rose was that they had someone on the inside at the, the, the hospital there, the maternity hospital in Limerick, and that as soon as she had their child, that he and a group of IRA men would go in there with guns and get a, get a tip off of where she would be and and get herself and the son out of there to an IRA safe house. But when she went into labor, uh, by this point, there was another uh, IRA prisoner, Angela Duffin, in there who, who was banging on the cell door and saying, there's something wrong with Rose, something wrong with Rose. And then the prison guards could see that she was going into labor. So then the prison governor said, if she's hidden this, if she's hidden this for nine months from us, then there's something up, and there is no way we're sending her over to the hospital because this is obviously some sort of escape attempt. And he was 100 percent correct in that. So then he decided that they would get two midwives to bring, come over from the hospital, and uh, she would deliver the baby in the hospital. So that's that's what happened. Her son Rory was then was born in prison. Yeah, well, an interesting call by the governor. I mean, if if they had gone to the maternity hospital, God knows what could have happened in there. Oh, I mean, it's shocking. I mean, it's totally, you know, you wouldn't want to even think about it. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I raised escape plan within a maternity hospital, yeah, you know. Yeah. And another feature to it, eventually when he was um, christened or whatever, uh, his godfather was Martin McGuinness. That's right, yeah. His, his godfather was Martin McGuinness and his godmother was Marion Coyle, who would later go on to um, kidnap... Yeah. That's uh, and then that's that, that that's the other thing. And I have to say, just personally, in in terms of my age, that was w- one of the big stories I remember from being very young. It was all over the news, which was, of course, the kidnapping of the industrialist in Limerick, Tia Herima, by Gallagher and Marion Coyle, who wanted uh, for Herima's release, they wanted the release of um, Rose Dugdale, and this went on. I can't remember exactly how long, but it, it was a massive manhunt all over the country and eventually uh, they were traced to a house in Monaster Evan in Kildare and I think you've written the book as well Sean about uh, Conor Cruz O'Brien many years later 
stated that uh, he'd been talking to a guard one time and they'd, they'd arrested someone. Again, you mentioned in the book one of the suspects and the phrase O'Brien used, they beat the shit out of him to find out mm. where uh, the kidnappers were, whether or not that was the, the crucial element. But one way or the other, they cornered him to this house in Monaster Evan, which then was under siege for a number of weeks. That's right, yeah. In fact, the Connor Cruz to O'Brien thing was interesting. It, it was kind of included late because Eddie Gallagher had said that one of the, one of the gang uh, was badly beaten by the guards to get a confession out of him, and you know, but but then that that was confirmed then by Conor Cruz O'Brien. So then you know that kind of gave it a, a heft or a, a authenticity. So th- so that was included then. That's right. So that led to the to the siege house in Monastery Evans. So there was there was Marion Coyle, Eddie Gallagher and Tita Herma in a box bedroom upstairs and then surrounded on all sides by Army and Gardaí and the international media just descended. I mean, it was a terrific story for, for media at the time. You know, there was a journalist there from the Belfast Telegraph who said it was, just became a, a media village out in the GA pitch there, you know, where there was uh, car- caravans and mobile homes brought in and then every newspaper had their own uh, phone line installed and um, they, they all had booked out the hotels as well to sleep at night and then they'd go back to the mobile homes during the day to see what was going on and just a huge, huge media story and a huge Garda operation uh, surrounding the house for weeks. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The other thing that struck me about it, Gallagher obviously is a highly intelligent man subsequent to, to serving long prison sentence. I think he became very successful in business. But maybe it's a reflection of the times. But the idea that the government was going to release Rose Dugdale in any kind of circumstances on the basis of this, it, it seems, it's one thing, for example, if, if they'd been looking for money, which, as we know, has happened with other kidnappings, but it seems crazy kind of a premise for all this kidnapping at the time. It does, yeah, in our world it does. But I suppose in the 70s, you know, you look at all these plane hijackings from Palestinian groups and all yeah. sorts of left left wing groups. It, it was considered at a time that you could uh, strong arm governments into getting what you want, and that there was some precedent in 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 Germany. You know, one of the radical groups uh, hijacked a plane, and they did get their prisoners released, and that really opened the floodgates to all of these sort of attempts to to get prisoners out. 
and um, you know Eddie Gallagher had assured the other members of the gang that like the the, the prison gates will will be thrown right open as soon as we do this because um, Tita Harriman was running a company that was the biggest employer in Limerick and the, the, the government would be under enormous embarrassment internationally uh, with trying to get investment into Ireland and trying to get jobs into Ireland that they would simply you know let Rose Dugdale out immediately which of course that didn't happen and I listened to a lot of the recordings yeah. of, of uh, Superintendent Lawrence Wren, who was leading negotiations. You can you can hear him on the recordings. The guards recorded everything, so you can hear him negotiating with them and telling them, if we let Rose Dugdale and the other two that you want out of prison, then you're simply going to go along and just keep doing this, you know, until you get every IRA prisoner out of prison. And we're, we just can't let that happen. And he was being, being very blunt with them that that wasn't going to happen. And, but he was negotiating with them on getting a plane. I think that was a, a kind of a stalling con- uh, tactic. Well, the idea was that they would get on a plane, they would drop Tita Harima off in the Netherlands, then the plane would go on from there. But but the guards were adamant that they weren't going to be allowed weapons onto the plane because they could simply put a gun to the pilot's head and say, oh, no, now we're going to Libya with Tita yeah. Harima, you know. So uh, that went on for weeks, those negotiations. Yeah, and thankfully it ended peacefully, and notwithstanding it must have been a massive trauma for Tia um and others involved. There was long prison sentences for Marion Coyle and Eddie Gallagher. Marion Coyle joined Rose Dugdale down in Limerick Prison. Dugdale eventually uh, finishes her sentence. She comes out, she moves to the inner city, Dublin, and then another phase of her life at the time, and well documented here again. Of course, she 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 got very much involved with uh, Sinn Fein and the and well working. She was working on Fublucht in in a major way. She was living there with her son in the inner city, and then she gets involved with the uh, concerned parents against drugs movement, which was which is itself is a huge story that occurred in the eighties. Inner city Dublin uh, local people realised that the, the powers that be were not doing anything about the, the devastation of their communities with heroin and so a number got together. There had always been, Sean, some people say suspicions, others say much more that the IRA had an involvement there. Now, I think in some of the groups they did, others they didn't. I think you mentioned Christy Burke here as well, who, who Christy is known independent councillor. He um, he was one time in the IRA. He was involved anyway and so was uh, Rose Dugdale. He was, yeah, and you know, it, it, it's a very fractured scene on the former concerned parents against drugs. Like they all, everybody seems to want to take responsibility or, or take the credit, but no one wants to take responsibility for things that went wrong. But uh, Christy Burke's version of the story, which I think is quite credible, is that a priest in the north inner city came to him at a time when the the inner city flats were just awash with heroin, and you know, as a sister later giving evidence in, in court said that, that, that they lost an entire generation to heroin. And and he said he knew that Christie was in the IRA and he needed IRA muscle to start leaning on these heroin dealers to get them out of the flats. And Christie said that he was reluctant at the beginning because, you know, we're fighting a war in Northern Ireland. But then he could see the absolute devastation that was happening in the early 80s. So then um, he held the first meeting of concerned parents, which was him, the priest, and a group of mothers from the flats in the north inner city, and it took off from there. And I, and I think some people want a sanitized version of, of concerned parents that you know that, that the IRA wasn't involved. They later tried to muscle their way in, but I don't think that holds up to, to historic scrutiny. I think the IRA was involved from the very beginning, and I think the reason that Christy Burke later became Lord Mayor of Dublin was because he did have a lot of support from the inner city families 
um, he said that they would have meetings with the different groups. You know, he was on the north side and then Rose Dugdale was on the south side and she would come to meetings. But he was getting a bit concerned about Rose's radicalization, you know, because she never held back and all the way through her life. One thing that, that's consistent is people saying she just, she would always escalate things and she had no fear. And I think that's borne out then by her court appearances. You know, she was twice uh, charged with threatening drug dealers. And and these are very serious people. Now you're talking the Dunn brothers, you know, who were notorious uh, heroin dealers. Like she she was constantly harassing one of them. And then a woman called Ma Baker, who who was worse than the Dunn's. Like she, she had no compunction about selling drugs to young teenagers. And Rose just walked up to her outside her house and told her she was going to shoot her. And, uh, you know, she, she was constantly, then she and others broke into Ma Baker's house and took out all the furniture and, trashed the place basically and then the guards came in and um, took down their barricades that they put up and really beat them and uh, you know that, that that's not a it's not a, an idle claim you could see in the Irish Times at the time you could see Rose coming out of a, a guard station with blood pouring down the side of her head um, so she was like she was very very much involved in concerned parents and they definitely did have muscle from the IRA you know no matter yeah. how people will try and rewrite it they, I mean it was from day one the IRA were involved yeah, and uh, as you say, people can sanitize it, but I, the, the people should also acknowledge uh, the actual devastation that there was there and the, the crucial element to it, the state was doing very little to do anything about it. And as you say, there's a vacuum there and then that was filled most likely by elements of the IRA and others. And that's the ultimate outcome was, to some extent, they were able to deal with the drug scourge at the time. Ironically, Sean, and you document this well, uh, Rory, her, her son, who quite obviously had, uh, to put it its mildest, an unorthodox upbringing because he's born in prison. He's, he's so, he's what, five or six, I think at least, or more, sorry, he'd be up to eight or nine by the time his mother gets out. Um, his mother's obviously, whether she has the time for what you might call the traditional parenting or not is another issue. Uh, and he ended up, at one stage, flogging drugs himself while his mother was attacking the dealers. That's right, yeah. He got into ecstasy dealing in a very, very big way. He was mixed up with, with some, some people who were very big into supplying the, the ecstasy trade in Dublin. And, uh, he, you know, he handled a huge amount of cash. And uh, But he would say, you know, I, I would only get one or two pounds per pill, but, you know, it, it's passing through many, many hands. So, you know, on any weekend, I could be holding thousands and thousands in cash, but I just, I have to pass up the line to other people. So that created tension then with Rose, obviously, when she found out about it, because uh, his girlfriend at the time, um, Sheila Boves, she was completely innocent. She had nothing to do with the drug trade, but there were people in her family that were involved in the heroin trade. So that caused huge tension. Um, Rose didn't like Sheila. Sheila didn't like Rose. A lot of tension there. But, but. Rory himself absolutely was just in the ecstasy trade and nothing else. And and then ended up uh, buying it from Scottish soldiers who were based along the border. So, I mean, it couldn't yeah. have been worse from a Republican perspective. Not only was he, was he in the ecstasy trade, but he was in business with British soldiers. So it was really yeah. out of there. And then, you know, there was a confrontation then at a garden party. Um, Rose actually moved out of the inner city, Eugene Street, to get Rory uh, a different life. She moved to Drimna get away from all the inner city uh, drug dealers that he was dealing with, hoping that a new life in Drimna would inspire him to to move on from it. Um, but 
they had a, a housewarming party and then she confronted Rory and, and said that she told him the story where uh, there was an Italian woman and her son was involved in the mafia and this Italian woman killed her own son to save the family honor. Now she said it sort of half ironically, but Eddie heard it and a lot of other people heard it at the party and there was a confrontation between Eddie and herself where Eddie was saying, oh, if you don't you dare lay a hand on my son. And uh, a bit of a standoff there because Eddie felt that he 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 wanted Rory up in Donegal with his family to get away from the inner city because he didn't he wasn't convinced that moving to Drimna was exactly getting away from inner city drug dealing. You know, did he he wanted yeah. Rory he, he wanted Rory out in the mountains up in Donegal away from it completely. So there was that kind of standoff and a bit of tension there too. And they're saying thankfully Rory managed to get past it all and and, and moved to Germany and made a, a fulfilling life for himself. So some Somebody ended up all right, all right out of what I say must have been a very highly unusual and unorthodox upbringing. Uh, then Rose meets somebody, something of a life partner later on, a man who has his own notoriety to put it that way. That was Jim Manon, who turned out to be one of the so-called Columbia Tree. That's right, yeah. And I suppose part of the aim of the book was to reverse the clock in the Columbia Tree because... I think a lot of us were very confused about how an earth tree IRA fellas ended up in Bogota, Colombia, uh, on charges of, of training FARC rebels. But what I wanted to get at was the fact that Jim Monaghan got out of prison in 1985 and then he rejoined Sinn Féin, went down to the Sinn Féin office in the Coombe. That was being run by Rose. Um, they got talking. At the time, Rose was in a sling because she, you know, she'd been beaten by the guards when she was... Um, trashing um, Matt Baker's house. So Jim Monaghan was completely taken with her. There was something very heroic about this upper-class British woman with her arm in a sling, having, you know, been fighting off drug dealers and fighting off guards and stuff like that. And Rory said that it was love at first sight between them. Like, they just got into these conversations and they just hit it off immediately. Um, Jim Monaghan, uh, inter- you know, I interviewed him and, and met him many, many times. He struck me as a very, very intelligent man. And there was something just, there was something between them uh, that just struck off immediately. So from 1985 onwards, uh, they were together and Jim was known as, as Mortar Jim because uh, yeah. he, he developed mortar weapons for the IRA. So he took Rose into that world very quickly and she basically, he he and Rose became the kind of uh, weapon development unit for the IRA um, based in a farm in Mayo, and they they had other helpers there as well, of course, to to help them. But Jim was really that's where he perfected his mortar techniques and and shoulder head mi- missiles, and then perfecting fertilizer bombs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they did it for a long time, from 1985 to well past the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. Uh, they were they were in Croy in Mayo perfecting these weapons. And the thing that struck me about that, and I, I once more I found it fascinating, but the thing that struck me about that, Sean, was they're perfecting these weapons, and you mentioned shoulder to um, the missiles and uh, mortars and bombs. And, you know, these bombs, and a number of them subsequently were, were used, were planted in places, blow up whomever happened to be in the vicinity. More often than not, people who had absolutely nothing to do with security forces or anything, innocent men, women and children. And even at that stage, 
the sense of radicalization that they were pursuing this aim and on the other hand they were basically just killing innocent people all over the place well yeah some some of the techniques i mean they they directly weren't but they developed the techniques that led to people being killed for example sorry the, the, yeah the, the the means by which people were killed excuse me yeah yeah right, yes yes yeah no they were um now the, the missiles you know let's say the, the missiles they perfected using packets of digested biscuits and rice and all sorts of stuff to absorb the the propellant gas at the back of the, the those were largely used against security forces in northern ireland and they killed an awful lot of RUC and, and and army, but it was the the, the large scale bombs that they perfected using fertilizer bomb and icing sugar etc. Uh, first in in Iron Mountain in, in Leitrim and then took took what they discovered there down to the farm in Ballycroy to perfect it. Like that was later used then for the larger scale bombs in London and even some of the the techniques that Rose herself had, had perfected, which was. Um, she had discovered they, they they were trying to develop a new type of detonating cord because their the IRA supplies had been destroyed when a bunker um, had been flooded. So they, they were thinking rather than trying to get them in from Libya, etc., if they could develop their own type. And it was Rose who came up with the idea of deconstructing Semtex into its constituent uh, explosives, which is PETN and RDX. If if you could break down Semtex into those two, you could then use those. Um, they made ideal uh, detonating cords um, for exploding large scale bombs. But then that 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 discovery then was later used in Canary Wharf and all of the big bombs in in Britain. So you know you, you're talking about development of weapons then that were used on on, on a massive scale. Yeah, and even Canary Wharf, from recollection, that was the young. I think he's a young immigrant. Might have been an Asian immigrant. Um, that's news right. agent yeah, or a yeah. newspaper seller just yeah, there trying to make right. a life for himself and he's blown to bits as a result yeah. of this and that's just one example you know, there's all sorts of examples and that disconnect as, as I would see it Sean I don't know but um, did you get any sense and you interviewed Rose Dugdale did she have any regrets about the people who died particularly those who might have died uh, through bombings, uh, which she was involved in, in in making, not setting or planting or anything, but certainly involved in perfecting the technology, if you want to put it that way. No regrets in that respect? Certainly not for army or police in Northern Ireland, but an overall regret that civilians were killed in the conflict um, by, of course, British Army and Bloody Sunday, etc., which had a big influence on her, but then also by the IRA. And that is why she supported the Good Friday Agreement, uh, because there had to be an end to all of this killing. And uh, so she, she, uh, a friend of hers who was a Republican in London was saying that, that at a time when everybody was being discreet in the lead up to the Good Friday Agreement, Rose wasn't being discreet at all. She wanted to know where everybody stood because she was uh, quite keen on getting a, some sort of settlement that might bring all of this to an end. Um, so I think that her answer to that is really based around trying to convince other Republicans that a negotiation mm. settlement would have to be reached. And one interesting element I thought to that, Sean, also is, you know, as we know, a lot of people who got involved with the Provisional IRA and, and other organisations, it was as a result, particularly those who might have suffered under the sectarian state in the North, the reaction to that and what have you. But she came 
very strictly from an ideological point of view and the notion of imposing a 32-county socialist republic, which was the aim of the provisional IRA. And ultimately, for somebody who was so ideologically driven, that didn't happen, hasn't happened since, and, and I'd suggest won't happen. Yet, as you say, she was happy to compromise, which seems to me <laughs> to go very much against the grain of her general persona with the uh, the Good Friday Agreement. Yes, yeah. Um, but I felt that she and others, although a little sceptical in the beginning, realised that the IRA wasn't going to win. They just hadn't that chance and that a negotiated settlement would have to be reached um, with the idea that they would kind of escalate against the British government to to the point that they would be forced their way into talks. And that's what happened. And people can redress the history all they want, but because of the the London Financial Centre bombings, uh, Sinn Féin weren't allowed into talks before that until they had completely decommissioned their weapons, but they basically forced the British government to allow them into talks without decommissioning. Um, and then got a pretty good deal that led to the rise of Sinn Féin north and south you know, to the point that Sinn Féin are by far the biggest party in the country, both north and south. I mean, they have the first minister post now when government has restarted in Northern Ireland. They're probably going to be forming the next government in the Republic. So, like, so they have, their aims are being achieved post Good Friday Agreement. And, you know, Rose was, when, when they had a, a special Ardash to discuss supporting the PSNI in 2008. Rose is one of those who took to the podium to support the PSNI against younger members of Hogar Sinn Féin who were against it and wanted Sinn Féin to keep their position of being against the police. So, like she and others of her generation, I think, could see that 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 peace uh, was getting Sinn Féin way, way further than, than they were getting when the IRA was in existence. Mm. Yeah, I suppose there's elements of that one could debate, but in the general trust of it, yeah, if, from a particular perspective, that would certainly hold in terms of the, the, the advance of the party since she's now currently, she's 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 still alive, she's in a, a nursing home in in, uh, in Dublin. Um, was she ever reconciled with her family? Yes, um, not with her sister, Caroline, who was married to a Tory MP. Um, they never spoke after the early 70s. Um, she went to prison, came out, never, never, never contact. I mean, this was a time when Tory MPs were were being trained by the police to look under under the cars for IRA bombs, and they did kill. Yeah, Erin Eve uh, was killed by the INLA in the House of Commons car park itself. So, I mean, Inga was also killed by yeah. by, by the IRA, um, you know, at his own house. Like, they went up there and they, they planted a bomb in his car. So, like, they, these threats were very, very real to Caroline uh, Dugdale and her husband. Um. So they never spoke again, but like she, she did uh, maintain uh, a, a relationship with her brother James, who was her full brother, and then her two stepbrothers uh, as well. They they came over to see her in prison, and they came to the safe house where Rory was. They tried to maintain uh, a, a friendship, and indeed, her parents came when she got out of prison. Her parents they visited her in prison, and they also visited her uh, when she got out of prison. Her relationship with James, her brother, has really strengthened after she got out of prison. And they have a good relationship now. And they talk about, you know, gardening. That's a big passion of his. And they talk about opera, and which they both enjoy. And he came over to 
to Germany when she went over uh, to see Rory and his kids. Um, so uh, as much as one possibly could, she has a relationship with her family. And finally, Sean, just from your perspective, as I say, and I don't want to keep going on about it, but I, I was really struck by the book, how good it is. You obviously had great access in terms of interviews. Um, did that take a lot of, of persuading people to talk to you about it? Yeah, initially it did. Initially it did. Um, Jim Monaghan was very, very open uh, in terms of allowing me access to roles. Like the first day he said he'd be down there and then he went down and then I was kind of surprised that he let me visit Rose whenever I wanted without him there like he didn't put any conditions on it he didn't say you you know you can only talk about this you can only talk about that and I think he wanted you know a full story uh, but there was there was times where he had other people who were kind of Republican leaning who were going to tell the story but they kind of lost interest and then he allowed me to to continue on uh, but I think that that opened a lot of doors, and I am grateful to them that they didn't try and impose anything on me. They, you know, they left it to me to just tell the story. Yeah, and some story it is: Eris Rebel Vigilante Bomber, the extraordinary life of Rose Dugdale, written by Sean O'Driscoll and published by Sandy Cove. Sean, thank you very much for talking to us today. Thanks, Mick. It was a pleasure. Uh, I'd also like to thank uh, our engineer JJ Vernon. Thank you, folks, for listening, and we'll talk again soon. And staying out of that heat. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.